0: you would turn with me to the scripture reading for our sermon this morning, which comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses one through 12. This can be found on page 1023 of the Blue Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. It's 1 John chapter 5, verses one through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Well, testimony can be a tricky thing.
1: In many cases, our criminal justice system depends on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Someone sees a crime, they testify under oath that their account of what happened is true, and it's all pretty cut and dry, except that it's not. The studies of eyewitness testimony indicate that our memories are not nearly as reliable as we'd like to think. That it's actually quite common for people to misrepresent events without any indication that they know that they're not telling the truth. And of all the things we might need someone to, to speak to as an eyewitness, uh, one of the most important and it turns out most difficult things to do is identify the person who committed a crime. Studies indicate that up to 75% of what we later learn to be wrongful convictions are based on eyewitness misidentification. Someone says, I saw person X commit the crime, and it turns out that that's actually not the case. Uh, According to experts, there are broadly two categories of factors that contribute to these eyewitness misidentifications. The first are what are called estimator variables. These are things that are kind of inherent to human beings' limitations. We can only see things clearly at a certain distance. Uh, We don't see very well if the lighting isn't good. Uh, Stress and trauma impact our abilities to interpret accurately the things that we see. Our memories fade, they even change over time. Those things are called estimator variables. There are also things that they call system variables. These are ways that procedures and, and systems might influence someone's testimony. So if the police lineup or or the photo array isn't done correctly, or if the witness's testimony isn't recorded properly, or if someone in authority uh, unwittingly says something that impacts the witness's impartiality, all of those things can contribute to an honestly held but still inaccurate and untrue testimony. Again, according to some estimates, as many as 5% of convictions in the United States are, are wrongful. A Reliable testimony is essential if you're going to get to the truth. But it's hard to find in this world where so many of us are, are limited, and where other factors are, are working against our witness to the truth. The more important the matter at hand, the more essential, the better the, the testimony needs to be. On our passage for this morning from the letter of 1 John, the Apostle is going to tell us about three crucial sources that testify to the identity and the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three, uh, three things and people who bear witness, who testify to who Jesus is and what it is that he's done. And so as we consider the verses that Daryl's just read for us together, what I'd like to do is just consider two things. First, let's look and see what it tells us about the source of our belief Let's look and see what this passage tells us about the source of our belief. And then second, what it says about the life of belief. How we live in light of the things that we believe. So first, let's look at this passage and see the source of belief. So we're going to think about faith. We're going to think about trust, about belief, about, about believing those who testify to the nature and work of the Lord Jesus. Now, before we get there, though, we have to see the, the content of the testimony. So John's going to tell us who it is that testifies to Jesus. But let's look first and see what it is that they say about him. So, so notice two things that this passage expects us to believe about Jesus. So first, we have to believe the truth that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. You see that at the very beginning of verse 1. It says there, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay, so right there at the very beginning, you see the issue that John wants to put on the table. Uh, We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then in verse five, again, he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Right, He, he expects us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this because we looked at this at great length when we were in chapter four. But John has, is writing to a church that has been infiltrated by false teachers. And those false teachers were trying to convince the congregation of a radically different understanding of the person and identity of Jesus. It, it seems that they were saying that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, became the Christ, he became the Son of God when the Holy Spirit descended on him at his baptism. And it seems that they were also teaching that he, he ceased to be the Christ, this man ceased to be the Son of God right at his crucifixion. John is at pains to make sure that the truth knows and believes the truth, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God in the flesh. He is the anointed king sent by God to save his people. That's the first thing that We need to believe. Uh, We'll think more about that in just a second. But the other piece of content we receive about Jesus is there in verses 11 and 12. He says, this is the testimony. All right, this is the thing you need to believe, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So this is the testimony. This is the thing that we are being told. There in verse 11, God gave us eternal life. So John's here speaking specifically about God the Father. Right? He says God the Father has given us eternal life. Now if you've been around church for a while, it's possible that you might be so familiar with that phrase, eternal life, that you, you miss just how big a deal it really is. Right When we hear that term, eternal life, we usually just think about life after death, about life in heaven stretching off into a, an, an unending future. And that's true, and that's good, but there's actually much more to it. And it's all good news for you if you're in Christ. Right? First John, the book, actually begins with the idea of eternal life, and it ends with the idea of eternal life as well. So in 1 John... Chapter 1, verse 2, we read about Jesus, the life was manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then again, at the very end of the letter, at the end of 1 John 5, 20, we read this about Jesus. Uh, he says, he is the true God and eternal life. So you have this idea of eternal life serving as something of the bookends of John's letter. But he doesn't actually tell us very much in this letter what he means by that idea. He seems to assume that his readers will know that when he says eternal life, they'll understand what he's saying. And and I think that's probably because he discusses it at such great length in the gospel account that he wrote, right, in the story of Jesus's life that bears his name. So let me just give you a couple of places, just a, a sort of a selection of places in John's gospel where we get some description of what is meant by this idea of eternal life. So in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the, the woman at the well, and he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up. To eternal life in John chapter 6 Jesus says this he says for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day then just a few verses later in chapter 6 Jesus says I am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Just a few verses later, uh, John 6, 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. In John 17, we listen in on Jesus praying to his heavenly father. And Jesus says, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You get get a sense from those passages, and again, that's just a sampling of what we see in John's gospel, but you get a sense that eternal life is so much more than just living on indefinitely into the future. It it does involve being raised up on the last day, not being left in the tomb, being raised up not to, to judgment but to everlasting joy. Eternal life, as as Jesus describes it, as he talks about it in John's gospel, is, is living life as you were meant to live it. Living life with an intimate knowledge of your creator. It's having the longings of your soul. right? Did you catch there? Jesus talks in terms of, of water and thirst. He talks in terms of hunger and bread. Eternal life means having the, the deepest longings of your soul, your, your deepest thirsts and hunger. Your, your desire for love and beauty and meaning and approval, your, your desire for a knowledge of God, all of it satisfied by Jesus, not just at some d- day off in the future, but now. And so returning to our passage here, we see in verse 11 that the testimony that we're, we're thinking about this morning is the testimony that God the Father has given us this eternal life. And significantly, you see here what 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 seems to be obvious from those passages in John's gospel that I just read, this eternal life is is intimately bound up with the gift of the Lord Jesus himself. Right there at the end of verse 11 of chapter 5, John says this, this life is in his son. In verse 12, if you have the son... Right. If you believe in him, if you acknowledge him, if you love him as the son of God sent by the father to save you from your sins and give you eternal life. John says there in verse 12, if you have the son, you have life. Again, at the end of this chapter, near the very end of his letter, John can even say he is eternal life. Right? Jesus is eternal life. To have him is to have this, this eternal life now and forever. It's so bound up with knowing Jesus that at the end of verse 12, John can say it negatively. He says, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So Jesus is eternal life. To have him is to have all of those things that that we just read from John's gospel. Right, it's to have springs of living water quenching your thirst. It's to have, it's to have f- bread for your hunger. It's to have life forever. It's to be raised up on the last day and to live with God forever. If you have Jesus, you have that life. And there's no other way to get it. it it's so bound up. It's, it's so connected to the gift of, of God giving his son that John can say there at the end of verse 12 that if you don't have the son of God, you don't have this life. Jesus, the Christ, sent by the Father to give eternal life to anyone who would trust in him, who would believe in him. That's the content of the testimony, according to verse 11. That's the thing being witnessed to. So the question then is, who is it that's testifying? Who is it that is pointing us to this great truth, the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ? Well. Uh, you see there in verses six and seven that John wants to talk about three witnesses. He wants to talk about three testimonies uh, of Jesus's identity as the Son of God who came uh, to save his people. If you look there in verses seven and eight, he says, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. All right, so moving on to our next point. um, (laughs) Okay, so three witnesses that testify to the fact that Jesus was sent by God to give us eternal life. John says the spirit testifies to it, the water testifies to it, and the blood. Okay, that's a bit confusing. But we get a bit more information there about what he means in verse 6. So if you look at verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. Okay, so let's, let's pull that apart. It says there that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. So there are a lot of opinions out there about what is meant by this idea of water. I think the most likely one is that it's referring to Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River at the beginning of his public ministry. Right, if you remember there, that was the moment where the, Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. The Father declares that this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Right, to say that Jesus came by the water was to say that, that he was baptized in, in, in solidarity with human beings, that he was truly one of us that he stood in our place and was baptized just like we need to be baptized. To say Jesus came by the water is to say that he conducted his earthly ministry from that point on in the power of the Holy Spirit that descended on him with the, the, the knowledge and the benediction that, that he is the Son of God with whom the Father is well pleased. The mention of the blood there seems to be clearer, pointing us to Jesus' death on the cross where he shed his blood for us. He died on the cross as our substitute, giving up his life as a sacrifice in our place. He took the death, he took the hell that we deserved, and he died so that we could have eternal life. So so perhaps we could put it this way, the water seems to point to who Jesus is. The the fully divine, fully human savior, right, Uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit, Pleasing to the Father, identifying with human sinners. And the blood points us to what Jesus did for us. That he sacrificed his life for our sake. The water, who Jesus is, and the blood, what he did for us. Now, now John clarifies for us there in verse 6 that Jesus didn't come by the water only. Which honestly wasn't something I was confused about, right? But he seems to be concerned that his readers will be it seems that this was actually something that, his, uh, that the false teachers in this congregation had been promoting. The idea that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, just a kind of a normal guy, uh, became the Son of God, became the Christ at his baptism, but then sort of left that behind before his crucifixion. Right? He ceased to be the Son of God. He ceased to be the Christ at his death because, of course, the, as the thinking went, the Son of God can't die. The Son of God can't, hang on a cross in humiliation and pain. But John insists here that Jesus didn't just come by the water. He wasn't just the Son of God at his baptism, but also by the blood. He he was still the Son of God at his death. This is important, of course, because if Jesus isn't fully divine, then his death on the cross can't save us, and he can't bring us eternal life. And so John says the, the water testifies to who Jesus is, as we see the Holy Spirit descending on the Lord Jesus, as we hear God the Father testifying that this is the Son with whom he's well pleased, and his death on the cross acts as a a witness to who Jesus is, right, the one who died to bring us eternal life. But but John insists that there's one more witness, a third witness, the, the Holy Spirit himself. Here it seems that he's pointing to the, the sort of direct and personal testimony that the Holy Spirit makes to everyone who believes, right? convincing us of Jesus' identity. And we could also say that the Spirit's witness to Jesus is recorded for us in the scriptures that the Spirit inspired. Right? In that sense, John's words here in chapter 5 are the Spirit's testimony because it's the Spirit that's inspiring him, right? pointing him to the meaning of Jesus' life and death. He says here that the Spirit, at the end of verse 6, is the truth. And so his testimony is reliable. So when you put it all together, a a fairly cryptic statement, I think, has a pretty simple and clear meaning. Uh, The Holy Spirit testifies to us about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so the question, I think, for each one of us is, what are you doing with that testimony? I think that's what John's pressing towards. So whatever whatever interpretive questions we might have about verses 6 through 8, it's very obvious what John wants for us in verses 9 to 11. So we read there. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. Right, we believe the testimony of human beings all the time. Right, our courts convict people. We make all sorts of decisions every day based on what people say. How much more then should we believe the testimony of God when he tells us about his son? If we do believe, John says there in verse 10, it, it, we have this testimony in ourselves, right? That, That when we believe, we deeply internalize the truthfulness of God's witness to the person and work of Christ. But there at the end of verse 10, we see the opposite is also true. If we choose not to believe, if we disbelieve what God has said about his son, right, about what his baptism says about who he is, about what his death says about who he is, about the the, the witness that the Holy Spirit, who is the truth, bears to him. If we reject that, John says, we essentially make God out to be a liar. And so we're reminded that there really can be no neutrality when it comes to the question of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. John reminds us here, if you believe what God has said about Jesus, about his son, then you have eternal life. But if you don't, you are essentially wagering your eternal destiny on the hope that God is a liar, on the the hope that he didn't actually send his son to save us, on the hope that Jesus isn't the Christ, on the hope that there is some other way to have eternal life besides belief in Christ. You are basically placing all of the eggs of your your entire life's basket— In the idea that what John says here in verse 6 is not true. That the Holy Spirit is not the truth. Friend, if you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as well. And you will find out one day that God is in fact not a liar. And so put your trust in him today. Believe the testimony that he has given us about his Son. Now, if you do believe this testimony, if you do trust that Jesus is God's Son who died for you so that you can have the sure hope of eternal life, how is it that you came to that belief? Why is it that you believe that and lots of people don't? Is it that you're more clever? Is it that you're more godly, more worthy of eternal life than others? Well, not at all. Look at what John says there at the beginning of verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Right, believing that Jesus is the Christ is evidence that, that something incredible and powerful has happened to you. Right, this idea of being born of God is one we've encountered already in 1 John. Right? It's an experience of, of the, the power and transforming work of God's Holy Spirit. Right, naturally, we are all dead in our sins and rebellion against God. We have no faith. We have no love. We have no trust in God. No desire to know him. No ability to know him. But when the Holy Spirit causes us to be, as John says there, born of God, we are given as a gift faith to believe the testimony that God has made to his son. We are granted new spiritual life. Just as we we read the promise in Ezekiel 36 that God would one day do this for his people. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 3 that we read earlier in our service that that this sort of necessary work of God's spirit was, was coming We are granted a new spiritual life. We are born again. And that life manifests itself in faith in Christ. So that John can say, you can can tell if someone's been born of God because they have faith in Christ. That's what born again people do. They trust in the Lord Jesus. I think that helps us understand what John says there in verses 4 and 5. He says, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, three times just in those verses, John talks about overcoming the world. Uh, The world, you might remember, is a way of sort of of succinctly speaking of all of the anti-God forces in this present system, in this present realm. There at the end of verse 4, he reminds his readers that they have overcome the world already. They've actually already achieved a victory over the world. Past tense, completed action. Right? They have victory over all that is opposed to God. It seems like he's most likely referring to their decision to reject these false teachers. Right? These teachers who came and taught some other vision and version of the Lord Jesus. The church rejected their teaching. They believed the testimony of God rather than these false teachers, and they drove them out of the congregation. And so John says, you have overcome the world with your faith. You have overcome these false teachers by believing what God says about his son. The church stayed close to the truth. And so in that sense, their faith, their belief was their victory. Believing that Jesus is the son of God who lived for us and died for us, that we might have eternal life. That was the way they overcame the world. So if you're a follower of Christ, I hope you can see what that means for you. It means that if you've been given faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you have been given an inestimable treasure. It's not that you're so clever or so holy or so worthy, but that God in love has caused you to be born of him. His Spirit has given you faith to believe the testimony about Jesus. And that means that if you're trusting in Jesus right now, despite living in the world, despite living in a world that might find your faith ignorant, ridiculous, outdated, close-minded, bigoted, if you're trusting in Jesus right now, God has achieved a marvelous victory in you, and through you. If you're believing in Jesus right now, that is a powerful work of God's Spirit, and that is a great victory over the world, over everything that stands against God. That's the source of our faith. The Holy Spirit causes us to be born of God so we can believe His testimony about Jesus, so that we can trust the, the, the water and the blood that tell us who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And that's how we overcome the world. And that brings us to the second thing for us to see uh, this morning, and that is the life of faith. So if that's the source of our faith, if it comes from the Spirit causing us to be born again so we can believe his testimony, well then what does that life look like? What does it look like to live out a life of faith? If you remember throughout 1 John, we've really been seeing three tests sort of three ways that we can evaluate someone's profession to be an authentic Christian, three ways we can know if we truly belong to God. There's the test of belief, right? Do you confess the truth about Jesus? We've seen the test of obedience. Do you keep God's commands? And the test of love. Do you participate in God's great love for his people? And so it should come as no surprise to us then when John is talking to us about our faith, our belief, our doctrine, our confession of who Jesus is, the Christ who lived for us and died for us, it should come as no surprise that John can't talk about that for very long without, without also talking about love and obedience as well. And so we see here in our passage that the faith that overcomes the world manifests itself, it it lives itself out, not just in believing the truth about Jesus, but also in love and in obedience. So you see there at the end of verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. I think the idea is clear. It's one we've seen before. If God loves his people and we love God, then inevitably we will love the people that God loves. If you love the Father, you will love anyone who's been born of Him. But there in verse 2 John makes another connection for us. He says, By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. So how do I know that I love God's people? Well, John says you can know if you love God, and if you obey his commands. That's a bit of a surprise. The apostle is making a connection for us between our love for one another and our love for God. Okay, we've seen that, we get that, we understand how that works, right? If I love a God who loves all of you, I need to love all of you. But he's also making a connection here between our love for one another in the church family and our willingness to keep God's commands. Right, that's, a, that's a bit of a surprise. That connection is less obvious. I think there are true, two truths in play that will help us understand the connection between loving my church family and obeying the Lord. I think the first, the first thing we have to realize is that when we are in a church together, there, there is a very real spiritual connection between us. Right, the Bible uses word pictures like a body with many parts, to, to describe the, the organic connection and relationship between people in a church. The Bible uses a picture like a, a temple made up of, of various living stones. Right, the idea is that we are all part of a, a spiritual organism, that we're, we're so connected together that the things going on in, in your spiritual life will inevitably have an impact on the entire congregation. The opposite's also true. Things going on in, in my life, right, will, will have a, uh, an impact in your life. If we're connected together in a church, uh, the things that I'm doing in my life will have a, an impact on the whole congregation. Right, think about it. We're a body. If there's an infection in the arm, the whole body's in danger. Right? Because it's a system connected together. It is very much the concern of the foot if something is wrong in the hand. And, and so it is with the church. If there is bitterness or laziness or drunkenness or a critical spirit, or envy, or gossip, or or the love of money, or sexual immorality, or or deceit. Right, If those things are present in the lives of individual members of the church, it will have an impact on the health of the whole. Right, those things can be contagious. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul warns us in his letters, those things spread easily through the whole system, through the body, through the building. They, they can breed and multiply like leaven working its way through a, a lump of dough. They also rob your brothers and sisters of the love and the prayer and the service and the generosity and the forgiveness and the mercy and the forbearance that you owe to them. That's why in our church covenant, we we pledge to one another that we will endeavor to live carefully in this world, that we will deny worldly lusts, that we'll strive to avoid all tattling, backbiting, gossip, and ungodly anger. Not just because those are sins that are good to avoid, they are, but it's also because my personal life has an impact on all of you. And so brothers and sisters, one of the best, one of the most loving things that you can do for your church family is to obey the commands of God, to pursue godliness, to abstain from sin. I find that to be a great encouragement, right? When you are obedient to God's commands, you are, you are helping to create a spiritually healthy and vibrant community for others to live in and grow in, right? When you pursue holiness, you're actually not just loving God, but you're actually loving your brothers and sisters as well. I think that the second idea in play here is the connection between our love for God and our willingness to keep his commands, so we, we, we have a very real connection in the church so that my holiness affects you all and your holiness affects me. The second idea is that there is a real connection between our love for God and our willingness to obey him. Look there at the beginning of verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. That has a pretty, pretty stark statement. It's so clear is the connection in the apostle's mind that he can say that keeping God's commands is the love of God. Now, we don't naturally think that way. We tend to think that love and obedience are on the opposite sides of the spectrum from one another. right? Love is a pleasant emotion. It is relational. It has to do with delight and enjoyment. Obedience feels cold and forced and legal. It's something imposed on me. It's something with rules and discipline. So how is it that love for God and obedience to God can be so closely related to, that John can basically say they're the same thing? Well, maybe we can work it out if we think about it. There is a kind of obedience that is drudgery. Right? When obedience is demanded outside the context of a relationship, we find no joy in it. So tomorrow I have an appointment with the DMV. I need to take care of some state mandated vehicle paperwork. And it is safe to say that I don't reserve much of my heart's affection for Virginia's Department of Transportation, right? I I have very little love for the DMV. And so the only happiness I get from that transaction is the knowledge that I'm not gonna be sanctioned for failing to comply, right? Making the DMV happy brings me no joy, right? If that's even possible. But there is a kind of compliance, there is a kind of obedience that comes in the context of love, that comes in the context of a relationship. And that's very different. So if you're a student and you have a favorite professor, you might find a a very real joy in laboring on a paper that you know will please him or her. If you love your spouse, you will find it a pleasure to do things that please them and make them happy. And it's that kind of obedience. uh, Obedience that's rooted in love for and delight in God. It's that kind of obedience that John is writing about. Right, it's not a distant and impersonal authority figure demanding your compliance or else. No, it's your heavenly father. The one who sent his son to bring you eternal life. This heavenly father is calling you, his precious son or daughter, to love his other children, to delight in his ways, to to look more and more like his beloved son. Right, if you love God, then keeping his commands is a delight. The life of faith, John tells us here, is a life of love and a life of obedience. Right, These three things, faith, love, obedience, they're woven, again, throughout John's letter. They're, they're woven throughout the life of God's people. But John says one more thing here that, that I want to look at briefly before we conclude. In all of this discussion of obedience and love that, that grows out of faith, that's given to us by the Holy Spirit, John says something really radical there at the end of verse 3. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Okay, we've seen that. Then look what he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Christian, I wonder if you really believe that. After all, God calls you to a life of open-handed generosity. He calls you to patterns of living that involve counterintuitive sacrifice. God calls you to humility in a world of pride. He calls you to sexual self-control in a world that can't imagine anything better than unlimited sexual expression. Following Christ means taking the way of forgiveness and love and mercy. It means preferring the interests of others and meeting their needs and seeking their welfare. Isn't it obviously less burdensome to just live however you want to live? Wouldn't it be less burdensome to just do what you want to do? Sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. Do whatever makes you feel good. Look out for number one. That feels much easier on any given day than humility, self-control, love, service. I mean, I'm not saying it's right, but it certainly seems less burdensome to just do whatever you wanna do, right? But here John reminds us, God's commands are not burdensome. I think there's three reasons. Three reasons that God's commands are not ultimately burdensome to his people. So John doesn't tell us these things, these are just things that we see in other places in scripture that I think will be helpful for you. Uh, first, <clears throat> God's commands are not burdensome because he only ever commands what is good. But right? when you look at the attitudes and the practices and the behaviors that that God calls his people to, what you see is that he's calling us to things that are beautiful and good. That ultimately what he's doing is is leading us to be like the Lord Jesus himself. And if you're a Christian, then you have at some level come to the conclusion that Jesus is the most wonderful, most admirable human being who has ever lived. Right? It's It's a basic rule. that that people instinctively become like those they admire. We are all shaped by the people that we think are good and noble and courageous and intelligent. Whether that's someone in your family, someone in your workplace, even someone in the public square, even a a fictional person in literature or, or theater. We are created imitators. And so we are all captivated by the examples of people that we admire. And I think what we see is we live more and more as Christians. The more we look at and learn about Jesus, the more that the testimony of the water and the blood, right? Who Jesus is and what he's done, right? The more we live with those truths, the more beautiful and attractive and admirable Jesus will seem to us. And I think we find ourselves longing to be more like him. To see his life and his love, right? uh, Replicated in our lives in some way, however faint And so for someone who loves the Lord Jesus, when God commands you to be truthful, or holy, or or gracious, or kind, or loving, that may not always be easy, but it does line up with the deepest desires of your heart. And so it's not a burden. Uh, the, The second reason that God's commands aren't burdensome is that he only commands what's good for us. Right, it is the nature of sin that we think we will be happier. We think that we will be more blessed if we just do things our own way. Sin tempts us to think that God's commands are a terrible burden, that they are preventing us from realizing true joy in our lives. In our sin, we are like a train, like going through a meadow and, and seeing the cows walking around wherever they want to go and saying, that's what I was made to be. If I could just jump the confines of these tracks, if I could just head out into the meadow, just be free to roam around in the grass, oh, then I would have real life. But trains, of course, are only free. They're only able to be what they were meant to be when they're running on the tracks. It's when they're on the tracks that they can go at breathtaking speeds and accomplish great things. A A train that jumps the tracks to go out in a field isn't worth very much for very long. In the same way, God's commands are good for us. My guess is that if you stop to think about it, you know that's true. That that indulging every sinful desire you have wouldn't actually be good for you. That it wouldn't actually make you happy or blessed. It wouldn't lead to your life being well spent or well invested. And so the commands of God are no more burdensome than the instructions of a doctor who wants to maintain your health. With the instructions of a mechanic who wants to help you make sure your car runs well. And then finally, God's commands are not burdensome because he gives us the strength to do what he tells us to do. Let's try a little thought experiment for a second here. Let's, let's imagine, for no good reason, that what God wants most from his people is for us all to dunk basketballs. That's what God wants. That's his command. For whatever reason, God wants you all day every day to dunk basketballs. No cheating, fully inflated, regulation NBA basketball, standard 10-foot hoop. So when you come to church, we just work on dunking. When you read your Bible, it's just instructions on how to dunk. When you pray to God, you're just asking him to help you dunk. So, we set up a court out here in the parking lot. We practice. We do leg exercises to strengthen our legs, right? More likely in our church, we would read like a 300 year old book about dunking, right? Talk about it together. Okay, so silly example, but just think for a second about how awful that would be, right? I I seriously, I went through our church directory. I, I don't know if there's anybody here, right? Maybe some of the teenagers, maybe some of the tall, skinny ones, perhaps. None of us are dunking a basketball, right? Right? If your walk with the Lord was largely him commanding something that you could never do in a million years, that would be awful. That would be a terrible burden. But imagine you were suddenly somehow blessed with the height and the strength and the freakishly long Achilles tendons of LeBron James, right? I don't know about you. But if I woke up like that one morning, there's nothing that would make me happier than soaring through the air and dunking basketballs all day long. Right? I would just want to play basketball all the time. Right? I, would never, I would never get tired of dunking over Seth. Right? It would just, I'd wake up every morning so excited to see if I could get Seth to play pickup ball with me right? in the parking lot. Right? Have you ever seen those basketball hoops they set up at the trampoline park for the little kids? <laughs> Right? And these little kids, they have a long runway, and they bounce up in the air, and suddenly they see the joy in their faces. They go flying through the air, and they, they dunk it through the hoop, and then they, they fall down, and they immediately get back in line because they want to do it again. Well, Christian, that's a, that's a picture of what God's commands are like to us. On our own, they're a terrible burden. Right? It's, a, it's a command to do something you can't do. No matter how many hours you spend honing your craft, you are unable. But here, John reminds us in chapter 5, we've been born of God. We've been transformed. We've been born again. We've been given a new spiritual existence. And the power of God's Holy Spirit is in us. And so now God's commands to us are not a burden like telling some gravity-bound person to dunk a basketball. No, it's more like telling a bird to fly telling someone to do the very thing they were designed to do. By his Holy Spirit, God has given us the ability and the desire to do the things that please him and the things that are good for us. I hope that encourages you, brothers and sisters. In the gospel, God has provided the very thing that he demands. We are born of God. And so his commands are not a burden to us. They are life. They are joy. They are love. Now the world presses us in the opposite direction. It it tempts us to believe that we will be most happy, most blessed if we throw off those commands and live however we want to live. But for those who have been born of God, who have received this new spiritual life, this identity by the power of God's spirit, we have overcome the world. Our faith allows us to see that his commands are not a burden It frees us to love one another by obeying the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, let's feed that faith by coming now to the Lord's table together. Here at the Lord's table, we have presented for us, for our faith, the symbols of the body and blood of the Son of God, broken for us and shed for us on the cross. Here we are reminded of God's great love, And of the price that Jesus paid so that we might have eternal life. And so let's pray together. And then let's come to the table. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. And we delight in the work that you have done for us. That you've sent your Son. That we might have eternal life. That we might have real life. That we might find our... Deepest thirsts satisfied by living water, that in Christ we might find our deepest hunger satisfied with true bread. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who came by water and the blood, the one who gave up his life for us so that we might have eternal life. Holy Spirit, we pray. Uh, that you would continue your witness to the truth in our lives. We thank you that you have given us new life, and we pray, Spirit, that you would continue to help us to love one another, to overcome the world by ongoing faith in Christ, and by delighting in obeying the commands of our Heavenly Father. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
2: Well, the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that we express our new spiritual life. The Lord's Supper is a visible picture, a drama, if you will, that displays the good news of Jesus Christ. As we come to the table, we're reminded that we have fellowship with God by faith in Jesus. The bread represents Christ's body, which he gave to save us from our sins The cup represents Christ's blood, which he shed so that we could be forgiven. And as we take these elements in faith, we are reminded that we have fellowship with Christ by his spirit. But who should take this meal? Well, this is a meal for Christians. So it's for those who've been given new spiritual life by God's spirit. The Lord's Supper is also for repentant Christians. It's for those who love God and obey his commandments. The Lord's Supper is also for united Christians. It's for those who love the children of God. Finally, the Lord's Supper is for imperfect Christians. So if you are trusting in Christ this morning, then you should take this meal. It doesn't matter what kind of week or month you've had. It doesn't matter how up and down your faith has been. This is a meal for sinners who are trusting, however imperfectly, in their Savior. So if you are a baptized member in good standing, whether that's in our church or another church that preaches the same gospel that you've heard this morning, then you are invited to take this meal. But before we celebrate together, we're going to confess our sins to the Lord, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's pray together.